And rather than having space to say, wow, this is real. This is something that is amenable to improvement with the appropriate supports. We say, no one can know about this. <laughs> uh, and historically, that's really been uh, the way in the legal profession. Coming to you from the deep and weird and ADHD-fueled recesses of Marshall Lichty's neocortex, this is JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD where we talk about finally getting stuff done. We help you optimize your law practice, your business, your life, and your brain. We hyper-focus on ideas, tips, and tricks for every lawyer with ADHD, whether they know they have it or not. And now, your host, a guy who once held someone's fake eyeball in his palm, Marshall Lichty. Hey there, friends. It is Marshall, and this is JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD. Did you miss me? I missed you. I missed you a lot. And it's hard for me right now because I feel like I have a therapist for this purpose, but I also feel like I need to share kind of a lot about what's been going on because I, like I said, I've missed you. It's been a long time and I take that really seriously and I've carried around a lot of it and it's heavy for me. So I feel shamed and I feel embarrassed. I feel lazy. I feel like I haven't kept promises to my people my wife, to my listeners, clients, to my friends, and to a bunch of people I've met through JDHD and elsewhere. And I've really struggled. I think part of it's because my routines are completely shot. Habits that I had worked for months or even years to cultivate and develop are destroyed. Listeners and email contacts that I worked for months to engage and listen to and support have heard nothing from me, whatever, which would be bad enough as it is, and even worse, because this is when they need support probably more than they ever have. And I've found that restarting something after I've stopped it, meditation, editing podcasts, checking emails, responding to texts, the whole mess of things is really, really hard because when I stop, it feels like everything collapses. We've got COVID-19, we've got quarantine, we've got Minneapolis as a hotbed and for a time, a hellscape of um, awfulness. When it comes to our history of policing and race and injustice. And I always had thought about this idea of pod fade in the podcasting industry. They talk about pod fade, which is the idea that you start with a bang and then it fades out over time, never to be heard from again. And I knew that that wasn't me. It's not what I wanted. This pack, this is such a passion for me that I knew I couldn't stop doing it. And yet it felt like all I could do was stop doing it. And I just wanted to share that because I know that there are a lot of people out there struggling. It isn't just me. Frankly, it's not even just people with ADHD. There are people everywhere struggling. And I think it's acute for us. And I wish I had been here differently. And so I am here now and I hope to have some rejuvenated energy because I still feel this great promise and potential. There's an incredible need for a place for people with ADHD to come, to learn about it, to talk about what it means to have it, and to think about ways to make its presence a positive impact in our lives and in our businesses 
And so I'm as excited as ever about it. And I was writing a chapter for a book in California for solo and small firm lawyers. And I was looking at the data about ADHD again. And I have a new appreciation for those numbers. By my math and the best data we have about the incidence of ADHD among lawyers, I think there are about 170,000 lawyers in the country that have ADHD. That's squishy and the science is weird and the polling is interesting. And I'm not convinced that's the right number. But if we use the best data we've got, 170,000. Here's the thing that walloped me. That's almost exactly the number of lawyers who are actively practicing in the state of California. That is an astronomical number. And as I sit here and I read through emails that people have written with care and passion and pain about how important it is to be a part of JDHD and to be with me here and with all of you, I knew that I needed to kick myself in the ass. And so um, I'm reinvigorated and I have uh, a new sense of obligation and optimism because I take responsibility for you and where we all are in this journey, in our professions, in our lives. And I've heard from so many people for whom um, becoming AJDHD is a critical part of their identity and how they're going to get through it all going forward. And so I'm glad you're here. I know this is a huge introduction, but it felt really important because it's been laying on my chest for a long time. There are definitely things that I'm bad at. Um, I'm, I'm bad at finances. <laughs> I'm bad at communicating when I haven't completely formed the thing that I want to say. I'm bad at editing podcasts. I'm bad at uh, keeping a cadence and asking people for help, at asking people for money and for implementing all of the ideas in my head, particularly without help. And I'm afraid to ask for that. But there are things that I'm good and passionate about. And just like you, I want to make those primary. I'm good at teaching and engaging and supporting and evangelizing. I'm good at opening eyes. I'm good at making difficult things easy to understand. I'm great at generating ideas for great interviews and ideas about how to support people. If you have an idea about what JDHD can do for you, please reach out to me. I have big plans. I have not implemented all of them. And that brings me a bunch of shame and a bunch of embarrassment and a whole bunch of itty bitty shitty committee things that I want to kill with fire. But they're me and they're JDHD. And I hope you'll be with me anyway. So with all of that said, I hope you're all well. I hope you're surviving COVID-19. I hope you are taking care of yourselves and your mental health and the people around you and your families. And most importantly, I hope you have time to listen to this great episode. I recorded a long time ago, uh, last year, it was 2019. And it's with a woman who is the dean of students at a top 20 ish law school. And I have such respect for her and the way that she thinks about what it means for law students and lawyers to be healthy. And we had a great conversation about that. We talked a lot about uh, how law schools and our profession itself can be resources for people who are struggling. We talked about how 
the panic monster can grip you when you're in law school. And if you miss a thing or if your brain doesn't quite get it, doesn't quite understand how to do law school with ADHD, whether you know you have it or not, uh, that there are ways that we can find support and find all kinds of resources to help us strengthen our resolve and get through it. And a lot of times it comes from peers, but it comes from elsewhere too. And so we talk about uh, deans of students and what their job is. We talk about the Hazelden Betty Ford study from 2016. We talk about a whole bunch of interesting stuff. And I hope you'll come along for the ride because this interview is with Aaron. He's the student, uh, the dean of students at the University of Minnesota Law School, a friend of mine and someone who brings light to the wellness of people all around her. And I'm deeply thankful. I hope you'll listen and enjoy. Well, welcome uh, to the JDHD podcast. Uh, I am overjoyed that uh, Dean Aaron Keys is here with us. and. She's been ever present force in my life for probably the last 20 years. We went to law school uh, near each other uh, in terms of years and went to the same law school and she now works for that law school. And so I've had a chance to talk with her uh, a bunch of times since then. But um, it is really my pleasure uh, to welcome Aaron Keys. Aaron, thanks so much for being on JDHD. Thanks so much, Marshall. It's a real pleasure to join in this conversation. Um, you know, when you approached me with the topic, I it, it was really something that uh, you know is filling a void uh, based on experience of a lot of my students and colleagues in practice. Uh, looking at the looking at the realities of living with ADHD among lawyers and law students um, is a really important topic. So thank you so much for giving us this uh, venue to explore some of the issues and opportunities. Well, I'm glad to have you on. And, and you mentioned students. I want to jump right in. Um, what does a law student with undiagnosed ADHD look like? Oh, boy. I don't think there's one way that anyone looks. Um, part of that is just the reality of law school. Um, there, it's, it's a totally different way of learning for most students, no matter how successful they've been in other contexts. It's a, just a different way of, of understanding information and, and grappling with tough problems. And I think part of the challenge is that in most law schools, r- rather than simply reading what the laws are and figuring out what the right answer is, you have to use a lot of uh, deductive reasoning. You have to be able to dig into really dense texts and make meaning out of decisions that were maybe written a hundred years ago. And also then to sort through what's important. What are the priorities in a given case uh, between cases that you've read on a particular topic in a class? Uh, and then knowing how to bring the arguments and and a logic reasoning together to solve a new problem that's presented at a test. And usually those tests happen at the end of the semester. And so the challenge is you've got three months or so of time to be reading cases, making sense of things. Maybe you're outlining or otherwise synthesizing the information. And it all runs up to this big exam at the very end of the semester where you have to be able to draw back to what you learned on the first day, on the 15th day, uh, you know, in the 47th case you've read and figure out how that is going to work as a tool to help you solve whatever problem is presented on the exam. And so uh, I assume that we know, we collectively, that mm-hmm. 
there is a best practice for how to do that, right? Starting on day one and ending up on test day, that there is a really, really solid plan for how to do that effectively. Um, yep. What I'm hearing you maybe hint at is the fact that folks with ADHD, diagnosed or otherwise, may have some struggles with that. Yes. Um, I think for, for people who are really self-motivated and are good at organizing their time in terms of both long and short-term uh, activities, it, it, there is a good way to do law school, which is making sure that you do your reading, attending class regularly, taking notes that have some semblance of order and meaning, and compiling information over time, over the course of that semester. Uh, so that when it comes to the week before exams, you're not going back to what you did in the first month and trying to figure it out. Um, I think a lot of students with either diagnosed or undiagnosed ADHD are used to performing in a different way, meaning they're taking in a ton of information in a ton of different ways, but they're not necessarily great at the executive function of putting it together in an organized fashion. And holding it in their working memory for an extended period of time. Exactly, exactly. So sort of, um, you know, they might be super engaged in a class discussion and really understand what's going on on that day. But poof, it might be gone uh, as, as soon as they leave the classroom. And if they're not returning to that information again until the eve of the test, it's sort of like starting from scratch all over again. So one of the things that I think some students struggle with is how to build meaning over the course of a semester and give themselves lots of opportunities to test their understanding of, of information because you can't cram in law school. Uh, I think that plenty of law students uh, were, as college students, able to you know, write a pretty darn good paper the night before it was due yep. or you know, really cram um, a study for another kind of exam that was maybe more amenable to their skills. Law school just doesn't work that way. So doing things last minute and not putting the time in over the course of a semester uh, can really backfire for students when it comes to exam time. So I think uh, a lot about the idea of margin and building space in our lives for mistakes or for things to not go quite the way that they planned. And um, mm -hmm. what I'm really curious about, and I, I remember this from my law school days, there isn't a ton of margin. And when there is margin, it's usually filled with either sleep or, you know, drinking or socializing or something. Um, and so in a lot of ways, you actually fill your margin, which is a healthy thing with unhealthy things. Um, yes. Particularly yes. in the case of drinking. In any event, the question yeah. that I have really is around the idea of when folks run out of margin, I can, I can guess when it happens. It feels to me like it happens as we are approaching exams and it becomes clear that they do not have the scaffolding in place to succeed on this all or nothing exam. Tell me a story about a student coming to you. And what it looks like for that freak out to happen, that realization that we have not built margin or we have not been studying in a way that is ultimately going to lead to productivity. I have dozens of, of potential incidents I could say, but what I will say is there's a certain pattern where students get into what I would refer to as a negative feedback loop. So at some point in the semester, uh, they hit the wall of, of, I don't understand this. I'm not managing information very well. I haven't started my outlines. And th that sort of sets loose the panic monster. And the panic monster just sets in play uh, 
cascade of sort of additional bad things. So uh, the student hasn't taken the time to, to do the um, intermediary work and uh, finds, you know, a couple of weeks before exams that, yeah, they're really in a pickle behind the curve in a pickle. Exactly. And so then, um, you know, uh, what a logical brain would do is uh, take a pause and come up with a plan and then spend every waking moment uh, executing said plan to make up for past readings, to talk with the professor about um, issues that are unclear, uh, working towards and some kind of outline or synthesis, and then fitting in lots of practice to make sure that it all makes sense. There's a but coming. Um, yeah, the the but is one of the things that is really challenging about having ADHD for students and practitioners is that it impairs your executive function and executive sort of decision-making. So if you were just one of these perfectly logical, I, I think probably doesn't really exist in the, hu- in the real world, <laughs> human beings who only operated on, on good logic, then yeah, you, you, would, you would make a plan, you would, you would um, implement it, you would have structures in place to make sure that you're meeting it. In real life, we get pulled off track. And I think especially for those with ADHD where, you know, life is throwing you lots of um, opportunities to address something as important. And what's important on uh, a day may be challenging for somebody with ADHD and that executive decision-making challenges to, to decide on. Is it really important that I... Um, iron all of the accumulated laundry in the basement, or is it important that I do my outlining? <laughs> um, is it important that I organize my recipes, or is it important that I go back and do that reading that I haven't done? Um, you know, and, and different people have different distractions and different things that are going to send them into that that loop where they don't do what they need to be doing, and then they feel crappy about it. And when you have something that you feel crappy about, your mind automatically wants to sort of say, run away from that crappy thing. Uh, and it just sort of gets you further and further in the hole. Well, I, I feel uh, a, a fair amount of shame about this, but it's time to come clean. I've come clean to others. Um, in <laughs> in uh, Professor Morrison uh, is, a, is a very well-known professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. I think he just celebrated his 50th year, if I'm not mistaken. He did. He did. And, and he per- remembers his first year like the back of his hand. It's crazy. That is crazy. And I hope he doesn't remember this because Professor Morrison <laughs> was my con law professor. And I um, during that semester, I was commuting up from a uh, southern uh, uh, suburb of Minneapolis and it was winter and it often took a long time and I had been staying up late for a lot of reasons very few of them were related to studying most of them were related to social you know social endeavors I actually um, started a magazine called the bar review weekly which had nothing to do with bar review it had, had everything to do with um, organizing people to go out to the bars Oh, I remember it quite clearly. That's a side combo. <laughs> I would stay up late and write this thing. It was a full on, you know, it had graphics and I would go to Kinko's to get it printed and I, I had no margin at all. And so yeah. I remember that con law in the first couple of weeks was brutal. And so I would go into Professor Morrison's classroom and he is a brilliant, brilliant man and a brilliant mind. He also has a voice that tends to lean toward the monotone and I was dying 
And I fell asleep maybe four <laughs> times in a row in the class. And on the, on the, this day in particular that I remember, I had my hand kind of on my hand and I fell asleep and my head fell out of my hand and it literally hit the desk. Boom. <laughs> and I remember looking up and no one was even looking at me. And I was like, have I actually fallen asleep so many times that they've all stopped paying attention? And so it occurred to me that that was funny. And so I laughed and now everyone was looking at me. And so what I did in my rational mind was this is literally the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. And I need to feel a very deep shame about it. And so I got up, packed up my things and I left and I didn't come back until the final. And you didn't come back until when? The final examination, that all or nothing end of semester, you got wow. to nail it or you're dead thing. Yeah, I did that. And you passed the class. You know, that's one way of looking at it. That is a positive <laughs> lens that people who don't have shame and embarrassment and what my wife calls the itty bitty shitty committee in their head all the time. Yeah. For me, that is yeah, just an embarrassing, yeah. mortifying concept of like, you know, have a little bit of grace, figure mm-hmm. out a way be rational and get it sorted out. And, and instead right. I had a very emotional and ultimately quite detrimental reaction that, um, you know, to this day, I, maybe I can look back on it and be amused, but I think about that all the time. Like that is a thing that I carry around with me every time. And that is part of my ADHD. It's part of the shame. And so you touched on that is this idea that um, it is not just that these folks haven't built the scaffolding around them. It's not just that they haven't maybe taken the steps that an ideal law student would have taken to master an examination at the end of their first semester. It is also that when they don't and when they realize that they haven't, um, it isn't just a matter of being rational and coming up with the right choice. It is literally right. how do I pull myself out of this shame spiral that yeah. um, is going to lead to a bunch of other really bad decisions. Right. And so that, that for me, that really resonated when, when you talked about that. Well, and there's so much shame around, uh, the manifestation of ADHD in terms of, uh, the things that are left undone, the things that were started, but not finished. And it, it has, you know, there's, there's a good reason why ADHD is so highly correlated with anxiety and depression in a lot of people. And I think understanding that there is, um, it's not just a functional issue, it's also an emotional issue is so critical and that all of those pieces need to be addressed. I was literally talking about that concept with my ADHD coach this morning before our call. Um, Mm -hmm. We were talking about the fact that on the, on the DSM, on the, the diagnostic criteria for ADHD are really very strict about the executive functions. They're they're func- it's a functional diagnosis. Do you do this right. well? Do you do this well? Do you do this well? Um, if you don't, you probably have ADHD and here's how we make the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Boom. And when you treat ADHD, for the most part, it is about a functional diagnosis. It's about building scaffolding around executive function, about ex- you know, externalizing it or outsourcing it or right. whatever. The thing that we don't talk about, and it's literally not in the DSM at all as a diagnostic criteria, is the emotional dysregulation that comes with it. It is that internal self-talk. It's the shame. It's the embarrassment. It's the, um, you know, sort of rejection. It's uh, imposter syndrome on steroids. And so I love that you're talking about, yes, we need to build scaffolding, but there's also this mental health and wellness part of it that even though it isn't formally in the DSM, by the way, my coach, who's a social worker, um, he says the DSM is just outdated. Like we now know that emotional yeah. dysregulation is a very live and very um, 
uh, diagnostic criteria of ADHD and his expectation or his, his guess is that it will become uh, part the of the diagnostic. Yeah. 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 So anyway, all of that is a, is a tangent to say that part of building the scaffolding is a part of it, but it isn't the whole thing. You're listening to JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD with Marshall Lichty. Maybe that's a good time to move to um, wellness. You have a history of really helping. I mean, you have this really interesting background of just having dedicated a career to helping people and making the world better. And it now seems to be taking on this life at the law school where you do that for law students. But my impression is, yes, you care about law students, but really it might even be bigger than that. It's sort of this idea that uh, if our law students are able to be well, take good care of themselves, then they can put on that oxygen mask and help their clients well or help their whatever. Absolutely. So I want to talk about wellness at the law school. Um, How are we doing at at, at the University of Minnesota and elsewhere in the industry for lawyer well-being and law student well-being and wellness? Yeah, I think the answer for that for way too many decades is really badly. (laughs) Hmm. So there are a lot of things in the legal profession that put a premium on how you look, how you come across to other people. You know, if you want to get new clients, you want them to have a sense of uh, your abilities and competence. They're going to want to know what your record is in terms of how many awards you've gotten, how many how many verdicts you've had uh, in your favor, um, or or how successful you are in negotiations. Those are the kinds of things that are really important to be able to show to clients. Sure. What's the other side of that coin is you don't want the legal profession and individual lawyers don't want to appear weak. They don't want to appear as if they don't know what they're doing. They don't want to say, I don't know. And I think that perpetuates this sense that if you address any underlying challenges or issues to your mental health um, and you do so openly, that that will mean you are, at least in in public and in, in the legal professions, some kind of failure. So we're all looking at what's going on outside and we're not paying enough attention to what's going on inside. And too often what's going on inside is uh, people who have real underlying disorders, whether it's ADHD or depression, anxiety, some other mental health issues. And rather than having space to say, wow, this is real. This is something that is amenable to improvement with the appropriate supports. We say, no one can know about this. <laughs> uh, and historically, that's really been uh, the way in the legal profession. So why do we say that? Why, why is that a thing um, among law students, among lawyers? And I, I assume, I, I want part of this to be a discussion about emotions, but there's also yeah. some some actual practical implications for that, or at least the impression that there is. So one of the biggest uh, stumbling blocks for student law students, at least getting help for whether it's alcoholism or, or some other mental health issue is their perception of the impact of that help seeking on their prospects for employment or being able to be licensed to practice. And that comes through in the fantastic study that uh, David Jaffe and Jerry Oregon at St. Thomas did um, a number of years ago that really stacks up as an important complement to the Hazel and Betty Ford study. This is the law school, Uh, the the law student well-being study. 
Exactly, exactly. And and the thing that they looked at for the first time, and I think is our, our big takeaway is that how are we as a community in the legal profession and in law schools incentivizing, encouraging, supporting, rewarding students getting help to deal with underlying mental health challenges rather than what we've done historically, which is to attach a stigma to that. Oh, if somebody's gone to get mental health care, then maybe they maybe they shouldn't have a license to practice. Sure, um, which is institutionalized in a lot of bars, right? There are bars around the, yeah. the, around the country that actually have questions about mental wellness and and mental fitness on uh, their bar applications, and right, whether right. or not the reality is that answering that question in the affirmative would lead to you not getting a license. Um, there is certainly the perception of it, and it's perpetuated by a lot of um, of regulatory agencies. Right. I had a, here, here's a, here's a great example too, of the sort of generational shift that we're in. I think the legal profession, I, I've heard other people say that, you know, we're a decade or two behind other professions in terms of <laughs> a, 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 a lot of um, arenas, but we're, you know, we're catching up. We now know that, you know, rolling up your sleeves and doing things and experiential learning is a really part, important part of becoming um, a competent professional. So we're, we're taking things out of just the classroom and books and, and, and recognizing the importance of, of doing things in real life uh, and how that contributes to learning and, and expertise. Um, we're also, um, you know, working on understanding barriers to entree to the legal profession for people from underrepresented backgrounds, uh, whether that's based on race or gender, um, sexual orientation or identity. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're trying to address all these things in the legal profession. And what I'm really excited to see now is that we are finally catching up when it comes to mental health, um, issues. I remember really distinctly working with, um, a fantastic student. Uh, this was probably a decade ago, um, or maybe, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. It all kind of blurs together at some point. Um, but this student was really an outstanding student and had, was, you know, doing well in classes and extracurriculars and was a, a, a campus leader in a lot of capacities. And the student was going through a rough time. They were having a difficult time. I can't remember if it was a family situation or a, a, a breakup, but uh, I remember talking to the student about, about difficulties they were going through. And I recommended, well, you know, it, it really would be a good idea for you to go talk with someone in our counseling center. Um, or if you have a therapist already, go, go talk to them. And, you know, they seemed amenable initially. And I followed up a couple months later and found out that the student had also expressed uh, their difficulties to um, a, a supervising attorney in their job. They were working at a firm. And oh boy. the supervising attorney said, oh, no, 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 no. You absolutely cannot go talk to somebody. Why don't you wait until after you apply for the bar and take the bar exam? And, and after you are literally flushing um, your mental health down the toilet for as long as right. you possibly can. Right. So, so I think that's one anecdote, but it represents, I think, what we've struggled with generationally is that that idea that lawyers are infallible and that they, even if they're not infallible, they can't at least show weakness by saying, hey, I have a mental health disorder, that generational schism um, is really powerful. And so that now graduate, now person who's out there doing fantastic things in the legal profession didn't get the help that they needed because they were told by someone in a position of authority 
that they should not only, oh, that's not a good idea, but no, you should not go do that. That's just one um, encapsulation of a message that is out there, whether it is explicit or implicit uh, in, in what people are, t- are picking up. Um, it, it's really powerful. And I think it endures even despite best efforts of a lot of folks in the legal profession and, and in law schools to, to, you know, more openly address mental health issues. Yeah. For, you know, that, that the Jaffe study you cited says that 42%, almost half of the students need help for poor mental health, but yeah, only a fraction yeah. of them seek it out. That 25% uh, said we're at risk for problem drinking and that only 4% of them had ever sought out any help for uh, or, or counseling for alcohol and, and drug abuse. And, I'll, and, right. and I think that you touched on something that's really important is this is not just a that person needs to buck up and become vulnerable or go get help or understand that there isn't actually a stigma because in a lot of ways there really is a stigma. And that's why we need to be mm-hmm. talking about this. I'll tell you in a, in a job that I had early on in my legal career, we had a, I had a client um, and he, it was, is at a time when I was um, riding my bike a, a fair bit. And so in, and in the winter in Minnesota, riding your bike is cold. And so I would grow a beard. Yes. Um, and this client, uh, we had become very close and he had, you know, he trusted me Um he came from a generation where he said, there is a time when I would have never hired you with facial hair because <laughs> my father told me that you, you know, it is not professional to have facial hair, period, full stop, end of story. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, ADHD is different and mental health is different than facial hair. But in a lot of ways, we have this old guard um, that perpetuates a bunch of myths about, uh, you know, the fact that seeking help for ADHD or for depression mm-hmm. or for anxiety or for substance abuse or for alcohol abuse or for relationship difficulties or for any, any number of other learning disabilities, dyslexia, dyslexia, et cetera, is going to lead to challenges with bar admission, challenges with academic status or their job. There's going to be a stigma. There'll be privacy concerns. Um, having a mustache is not the kind of stigma that I worry about, but I definitely worry about the kind of stigma that is leading people to live and suffer silently with a thing that we know leads to anxiety, depression, inefficiency, exhaustion, shame, et cetera. And that is why I'm glad you're talking about it. Our website, thejdhd.com, makes this podcast possible. Sign up for a completely free 10-day email course, introducing you to ADHD for Lawyers at thejdhd.com slash course. Um, So the law school started a mental health committee. You have a wellness room. You're actively engaged in the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. Um, You even have the Theater for the Relatively Talentless. Tell, Tell me about what the law school is doing to support mental health and to support students in things other than figuring out who can, you know, log the most hours in the stacks. Right. Um, One of the most important things I think that we are doing is talking about this a lot and in, in multiple venues. One of the things that I'm really always grateful for is the fact that so much of the learning and guidance and mentoring that happens within the law school is student to student. It's peer mentoring. And, you know, whether that's through legal writing instructors or our academic support, um, student instructors, uh, orientation leaders, journal editors, moot court directors, there's so many different ways that our perhaps more experienced students can influence the inclination of newer students 
to take care of themselves and to value wellness as something that's just as important to their professional development as, you know, the ability to, uh, you know, cross-examine a client. Um, and so we have, um, for the past, uh, gosh, five years or so, convened the peer leader training at, in the fall semester or just before the fall semester to make sure that we are um, thanking and uh, providing good uh, updated information to uh, our students who are in peer mentorship roles. And the amazing thing is, you know, it, it's it, the law school administration that is providing some of the information, but so much of the learning and, and the culture shift is happening because it's important to students and students are driving that change. Uh, and I think that that is probably the most important thing to just remark on in, in terms of what's changed in the last decade or so. Um, I love hearing uh, about students who are coaching other students to figure out where the student counseling services are on campus or talking openly uh, with students about, you know, what they, you know, oh, I, I can't do that on this afternoon because I have a therapy appointment, but let's try for next week. You know, just kind of working in self-care and mental health care and other kinds of healthy activities into day-to-day -day law school life in a way that I don't think we have um, previously. So again, just underscoring the, the critical importance of that peer influence um, I joke sometimes that as an administrator, I can stand in front of a group of students and drone on um, until, you know, we're all blue in the face. I bore myself sometimes with all the stuff I have to talk to people about. Um, but it's just different hearing, hearing, hey, you know what, have you, have you checked out the law school's uh, resources page? There's a lot of great information there. And what you're talking about sounds like something that I got help for at X office or Y office. You know, that kind of messaging, I think, is way more important than me um, or, or anyone else in an authority position saying, you know, thou, thou shalt do this or that. I think it's, it's, it's important because it's um, taking the shame away from it. It's regularizing it. It's normalizing it. It's putting a value on it in a way that is, is really a 180 degree shift from, you know, that, that older practitioner who told my former student to um, explicitly not seek out help. Now we have a lot of students who are telling other students, hey, you know what, there's lots of help for that. And here's how you can find it. And so I think that peer to peer atmosphere is really powerful. And I think that it makes me really optimistic and excited for how the profession is going to continue to do a better job in the future in dealing with, um, you know, just the day to day needs of, of people who might need a little extra support here and there. Um, and that includes ADHD. Right. You know, maybe maybe some people are calendaring life in a way that might look a little odd to other uh, practitioners or students, but they're using tools that they know are going to help them maintain uh, some order and organization and to be able to execute on their clients' needs. And so I think, um, again, it's it's a culture change and it has to happen on on both the front lines, but also from the top down. Yeah, I love that. Well, and, and I think when you talk about the top down, you know, in um, August of 17th, just about two years ago now, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing uh, issued its kind of report. It summed up the research that came out in 2016 about kind of the state of abuse and pathology in our profession and, and really mm -hmm. started a movement toward 
um, bringing this out and talking about it at a much higher level. And, um, you know, one of the very explicit recommendations in there for law schools is to create ways to empower students to help fellow students in need. And so it sounds like you're taking that to heart and that you've built infrastructure for that. There are obviously a ton of other recommendations in there for law schools. There are recommendations in there for regulators and for a whole bunch of other places, law firms in particular. But I love the idea of talking about this in a much more, um, you know, a much more open way and creating places where people can find help where they need it and where they are, not just sort of dictating this is the way that you have to do it. You must go to a lawyer's concern for lawyers meeting or you must go to a, um, you you know, to a a private counsel or private therapist to get resources for this. You can go to a student, you can go to a professor, you can go to, you know, a support group. And so I, I love that you're. Uh, working on systems to make that uh, uh, more real and, and a bigger part of the conversation. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough. The other piece of this is what help is available out there. And uh, sometimes that can be difficult to, to nail down. Um, and especially in the context of ADHD. So Yes. Um, not every counselor or therapist, is, you know, has has expertise in the many different ways that ADHD can manifest for students. And so I try to also coach students that when they're looking for a counselor or therapist, that it is absolutely okay. Uh, and it may just be a reality of, of, of the process of getting support that you might meet with multiple therapists until you find the right fit. It always makes me, um, it always, it's, saddening when I have a student who maybe has barriers about seeking help in the first place. Maybe they just don't have a context for, for that being a priority from their you know, family history or, again, just taking in a lot of these messages around stigma um, that they finally you know, screw up the courage to walk across campus and, and get to a therapeutic meeting. And then it doesn't feel like a good fit. And it doesn't, it doesn't help in the ways that they want it to on the first go. There's an even worse outcome, right? There's one outcome, which is that just didn't feel right or felt gross or I was uncomfortable. I don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, my experience and, and the experience of many people like me, this is particularly true for lawyers. It's particularly true for people who have high IQ uh, and that mm-hmm. cohort tends to be big within um, the legal industry. They might right. even go into a therapist or a psychologist or a treater or diagnosis and, or diagnoser and say, um, you know, here's my background. Here's my social background. And this was my experience. I sat down with a psychologist. She was, I was referred to her. She claimed to have expertise in ADHD. I had been stru- mm-hmm. suffering from anxiety and I went into Roberta's office and she sat down, we did my social history and she said, hold on, let me get this right. You graduated from college. Yeah. You went to law school. Yeah. You graduated from law school. Yeah. You took the bar exam. Yeah. Did you pass the bar exam? Yeah. Did you practice as a lawyer? Yeah. You don't have ADHD. And then she proceeded to kind of hold her nose as we did a little bit more work. And inevitably, of course, what came back was a diagnosis of anxiety. But I'd been treating for anxiety. I had medication for anxiety and I wasn't doing a thing, not one thing. And that set me back a good half year. And it wasn't until my son was diagnosed later that his doctor looked at me in my eye and said, one of the biggest challenges we have with treating young boys who have ADHD is that a lot of times it's the blind leading the blind. We know it's highly hereditary and that one parent probably has some of this and that if he or she has it and it's undiagnosed, they're going to have a very hard time 
being useful to a son or daughter who has ADHD. And he was looking me, looking at me and said, does, <laughs> does any of this resonate for anybody in your family? And then looked at my wife and said, I know you don't have ADHD. So, um, you know, the, she was an active disincentivizer for me. It was not just a benign, this didn't feel yeah. right. It was an actively destructive experience in my journey. And yeah. I, I remember walking out of there thinking, well, my anxiety treatment isn't working and I don't have ADHD. I am out of choices. I don't right. know then what it, this then it is. starts to feel like it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I, yeah. so yeah. your point is very well taken, which is we need to encourage students to not just stop after the first one and to figure out a way to do that in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, drug seeking or whatever, which I'm sure is the thing right. that happens in law schools with people who just want Adderall right. to study better. Right. Well, and here's another, another um, uh, kind of similar thing that I've seen over and over again is, um, and, and, and I'm going to say that this is often the case. It's not exclusively for women because you, I mean, you went through the same challenge, but the way that ADHD manifests in people looks very different um, from person to person and from you know group to group. Um, the the hyperactivity aspect that we sort of stereotype um, may be more common in boys. Uh, it may show up there in a way that a teacher or a parent is going to notice and try to do something about. Yep. So there is a higher there there are higher rates of diagnosis in in boys than there are in girls, um, even though girls may be similarly impacted by um, the inattentive type. And, you know, they, 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 they have the same challenges in terms of executing the things that, that you know, the world and society tells them they need to do. Absolutely. Um, and and the, what, what, back to your point about, you know, people in the legal profession generally being a pretty smart group, we are folks that have been um, gifted with the kind of intelligence that is rewarded in many contexts in at least the U.S. system. You know, maybe we're good at, at, at uh, uh, reviewing for a test at the last minute and, and doing really well on that exam. Um, we can just pull it out by dint of, of, of high innate intelligence, again, of the kind that's rewarded on tests because I, I don't think there's, I think there are many kinds of intelligences. But uh, the challenge is that I think people can have a deficit in their executive function that is often muted or or hidden altogether by their um, you know either killing themselves to get things done um, or uh, the, just the fact that their intelligence allows them to solve problems in a way that they can um, pass basically blank yeah they can pass exactly. And so I've had students who were not diagnosed until after they started law school. And I think, you know, that's a really important thing for, for them to do because they need to understand, okay, what treatment modalities are available? What kind of medication may help me? Um, how is this going to affect my life for the rest of, of, of my, you know, professional and, and personal existence? Um, but back to the real challenge of professionals not all having the same view or approach or expertise in ADHD because we have had um, graduates who have, um, for a lot of reasons, again, because perhaps they were able to mute the impact of ADHD in, in prior settings, once they get to law school and the new learning environment and the many different pressures that are available here, um, there is no way they can mask the, the impact of the ADHD anymore and they have to get help. 
But then when it comes to things like um, seeking accommodations on exams um, for the bar exam, sure, that's where we have some professionals who basically, you know, say, well, prove it. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're very skeptical about whether somebody who is diagnosed in law school, A, really has ADHD or B, really needs accommodations for it because just like you heard, well, you've been successful in all these different capacities. Yes, but at what cost? At what cost has that success come? And what is the delta between my potential and my performance? And exactly, you know, exactly. How, how dramatic is it? How much more could I be delivering? How much better could I be at, at the things? Well, right. so Aaron, I want to do a couple of things before we wrap up. They're important to mm-hmm. me. Um, I love this conversation, though, and I and I, I can't say enough about the work that you're doing that the law school is doing and and really that the profession is starting to do around this. I don't think we're mm-hmm. anywhere near, um, you know, peak ADHD awareness or mental health right. awareness, but right. it's starting and, and people like you are, are a really critical part of that. I want to, I want to talk briefly about um, quickly. What is, what is a Dean of students? What do deans of students do? What are student <laughs> affairs? When I was in law school, I, I had an ambient awareness of who these people were. And I, I actually liked one of them personally as a, as a friend, um, uh-huh. but had no idea what her job was. We had no idea why I would go there. Tell me and tell the law students who might be listening, what is yeah. the student affairs department? What does the Dean of students do? And if you are struggling in any way, shape or form, or if you have a particular set of awesomeness that isn't being met somewhere, um, what, what can you do? Yeah. Uh, so student affairs looks a little different at every institution. And so my view is really based on my 15 years of experience at um, University of Minnesota Law School. So um, with that caveat, um, in, in our iteration of student affairs, we, my, myself and, and my fantastic team members, sort of break our work into three different areas. Um, one is registration records. So you got to get registered for classes. Uh, somebody's got to enter those grades and calculate GPAs and figure out things like honors and, and make sure that student records are protected. Um, so that's all sort of our reg- registrar, register and records um, area. Um, another really important area, um, and, and this kind of goes back to that peer leader and, and sort of the cultural aspects of law school, is um, uh, student uh, community and leadership development. So we have um, our our senior director, our senior coordinator for diversity and student programs, um, runs orientation and works with student leaders to implement fantastic activities on campus. Um, our student organizations make the law school hallways sort of a, a an ongoing marketplace of ideas in a really positive sense. Yeah, I love that. Um, and so it's that really community community building um, uh, aspect. And then the third area, and this is where I spend a lot of my time, uh, along with with other colleagues, is in support and standards. So. Probably not surprisingly, when people come to law school, there's a new set of standards and expectations for the things that ne- they need to be able to know, do, and and value um, as as future professionals. Sure, you came in as this, you're green, and when you get to the end, the way we know you succeeded is if you have accomplished or learned or learned to develop or deploy these exactly. things. Okay, right, and and so we all law schools have to have their own version of this, but every law school has. Um, a set of learning outcomes and and what is it that a student has to know and be able to do by the time they graduate. 
Um, and so for, for Minnesota law, um, our student affairs office and our support and standards role really has to do with helping make sure that students are, are learning about what those standards are. Um, I always love the idea from um, a, a, a speaker named Wharton Bellamy that if we want to have a more open um, and accessible and welcoming law school learning environment, we have to be able to um, give everyone sight lines from the time that they step into law school. Um, how do we help them see the various steps along the way? Uh, so that we're not, you know, there aren't people who've, who've uh, had access to all this information because maybe they have lawyers in their family. We want to make that information accessible to everyone. And I think that that's what the learning outcomes do. Can I interrupt for a second? Because I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to flag some of these because I can tell you there are a lot of reasons I would fail out of law school these days. But uh, one of them <laughs> is because all, everybody who goes to law school is way smarter than like, I, I mean, believe me, all of my classmates were really brilliant. But now, like even the brightest of the bright probably wouldn't get in because it's amazing what, you know, what's happening at the law schools and the level of talent and stuff. But as yeah. that's, you know, that's my brief aside. What is not an aside is here are some very ADHD relevant learning outcomes at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, communicate directly with organization, focus, purpose, and clarity. Listen to and engage with clients to identify client objective, objectives and interests. Manage complex workflow diligently, reliably, and within deadlines. Respond effectively to criticism and other feedback. Mm -hmm. Seek and <laughs> use resources where necessary to address personal challenges. There are others, but these are literally the foundational building blocks of a legal education. And they are things that folks with ADHD are... Um, it, they're challenged on a, uh, in their neocortex to do those mm -hmm. things effectively. And basically what I want to say in the interest of time and individualized attention is if you are a person who struggles with those things, you take whether your, or not you're, whether or not you're diagnosed totally, with anything, totally, regardless of whether you're diagnosed, particularly if you're not diagnosed, you take your ass down to the student affairs office. And you take your ass into the dean of students and you say, I need help. These are the ways that I am going to accomplish what you want me to accomplish as a law student. And I am struggling and mightily and I need your help. That is what student affairs does. And here, here's an important clarification, though. Um, I am not the person and no one on my team is the person who's going to tell a student how specifically to address those particular challenges. Sure. Right. I yep. don't have the, the right letters after my name. I don't have that expertise. What I can do is help them evaluate the many different options uh, that are available to them either on campus uh, through the university or offsite um, through other you know, specialty clinics. On a very um, popular or, podcast, wherever. Yeah, very popular podcast. Um, or, or get them pointed to um, Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, which has uh, an ongoing support group, which I think going back to that whole cultural piece, being able to sit down and talk with other people who've struggled with um, ADHD, diagnosed or undiagnosed, um, and, and the kinds of, of, of manifestations, um, to be able to sit in a room with other really smart people who've had similar challenges um, can be really empowering. And I've gotten great feedback from folks who have participated in that group. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think you have to show up with a diagnosis to participate. I think you can just show up and, and join the conversation. Yep. Um, and, and I think, I, I, again, I think that sense of empowerment 
can really um, uh, help to bolster the, I guess, the sense of efficacy that someone might have when we don't feel like we have power and autonomy, where it, it makes it hard to make and then execute on good decisions. If we have a support group around us, if we are getting a sense of support from our peers, from faculty, from student affairs or other other uh, folks on campus, then um, it, it helps to um, encourage people to actually make good on, um, actually implement a good idea, which is getting yourself into work with a therapist um, or pursue a diagnosis um, or pursue an evaluation um, and, and recognize that there are, are a ton of options out there. The encouragement that I have, and I think that I'm hearing you echo, is really um, just start. If, if things yeah. that I said and that are obvious in um, either your career as a lawyer or your burgeoning career as a law student, if it becomes obvious that there are outcomes that you are struggling with, just start. Mm-hmm. Just start the process of figuring out a way to figure out a way. Go to the yes, dean. Of, I love that. Go to the dean of students. Go to student affairs. Sure, go to a therapist. Sure, go to. I, I will tell you that the the scaffolding that I have built around me since my diagnosis involves an ADHD coach, a therapist. I am now a member of an ADHD entrepreneurs um, mastermind group. I go to the LCL ADHD support group. I have um, a productivity um, sort of nerdery that I that I engage <laughs> in, um, all of which is designed very specifically to help me with the tactics of becoming better with some um, you know biological impediments to executive function that I have. And none of those things is the answer, but they are all part of the answer. And if you are in law school, part of finding your own answer is to start somewhere. Certainly, somebody like Aaron Keys or someone in student affairs, but also, um, you know, anyone peer to peer or, uh, you know, therapy or a coach or whatever, just start. Yes, absolutely. So I want to, uh, I want to wrap up. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for, for bringing your voice to the conversation. I, I know that you are, um, you have such a long history of helping people and what's super meta about it is you actually have a history of helping people who help people. Um, with your work on the lawyers uh, repayment assistant program, which helps people who want to do l- low bono and, and less, pro- less um, uh, uh, profitable professions actually do them in a way that uh, they can afford without being burdened by uh, law school loans and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also of course, helping at the law school and elsewhere. Um, tell me if you could wave a magic wand what part of ADHD do you wish that everybody on the planet had? Curiosity. Attention deficit is such a bad uh, description of ADHD because what I have seen in a lot of students and a lot of people with um, ADHD diagnoses is a real openness to learning and a curiosity about how things work. And you know, the reality is that once someone's curiosity is peaked, they can, they can hyper-focus, um, really dive into a topic or a project and do incredible work. And so that sense of curiosity and wonder and interest, um, can be really infectious if it's channeled in, in a helpful way. And it is something just as an aside that our profession desperately needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, and, and I guess the converse, and, and I'm not going to end on a down note because I'm then going to tell people how to find you and your awesomeness. But the, the, the quasi <laughs> down note is if you if you could wave the same magic wand um, and, and across the whole wide world, you could make one part of ADHD disappear forever. What, what part would that be? Analysis paralysis. Um, that, that, that being the sort of trap of sorting through all of the options, uh, without landing on an execution. Uh, I think that, that a lot of folks with ADHD, um, and a lot of us, you know, just in, in life sort of struggle with that sometimes of, of worrying over all of the possible outcomes. And, you know, we're taught to do this in law. Uh, but sometimes that means uh, paralysis and getting stuck, and so that's something that uh, if if I could wave a wand, I would I would help people get rid of so they could just get her done, so to speak. Just start, and it's the perfectionism. Just start. Yep. It's the feeling yes. that I I can craft a perfect solution if I just work harder, write longer, research more, um, find one more case, spend a yes. bit more time. Um, you know, research one more solution for my, my law firm's technology solution. Right. But what, have I found the perfect case? Have I found the perfect case? Yep. And until <laughs> in, in I do, right I'm completely locked up and, and I can't move. And so I love that idea of, you know, it's weird. Folks with ADHD are accused of having impulsiveness. They're accused of making choices really quickly. And yet the way that it manifests itself awesome, oftentimes is I can't start or I can't finish. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that advice. Well, um, Aaron, uh, Dean, Dean keys, you are, um, like I said, a soldier in this fight. And I, I, I appreciate the work that you are doing so much. Um, and I know that you have a, a lot to add to this conversation and a lot to offer the students who are, you know, graced with, um, university of Minnesota law school education. I encourage people to track Dean Keys down on Twitter where she's medium involved, but you can find her at Dean underscore keys. Uh, or the best way to probably find her is by email. Uh, and it's uh, key, K-E-Y-E 0019 at umn.edu, key 0019 at umn.edu. Aaron, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, keep up the wonderful work. Please keep talking about this and um, we will see you along the path. All right. Thanks so much, Marshall. And thanks for keeping this important conversation going. I'm happy to happy to take part. And, and as always, I'm always learning as well. So listen, that's Aaron Keys, And that's law school with ADHD. And I'm so thankful that she joined me to talk about this stuff. We are just at the beginning of making this easier and making this better. I gave a speech not terribly long ago to a room full of people at a major law firm in Minneapolis. And as we were getting set up, I had to get some slides set up and the host was there kind of working it out. And a senior partner from that law firm walked by and asked someone what was going on. And they said, we're going to talk about legal professionals with ADHD. And that guy rolled his eyes and said, I I guess and walked away in a very dismissive way. He is just one person and I can't lay on all of the senior partners in all of the law firms responsibility for hearing the voices of people with ADHD in our profession. But there is a hill to climb 
and a hurdle to overcome. And it is the fact that there are so many people in our profession who don't understand what ADHD is, how prevalent it is, and what the ramifications of ADHD, diagnosed or undiagnosed, really are for people like us. And so I want to encourage that law firm partner, of course, but also all of you. If you have any sense at all that you or someone around you has ADHD, diagnosed or otherwise, let's be talking about it. Let's listen to Dean Keys and think about ways that we can make this better in our profession. Not just to eliminate the bad stuff, but to think about what it looks like for us to maximize the good stuff. And so I want to encourage you to go to the website, to reach out to me, to join the mailing list, to talk to your law schools, to talk to your law firms about ADHD, about JDHD, and reach out. I would love to work together and I would love to help make ADHD easier. Is law hard enough? Thank you so much for staying with me. I'll see you around the way. Thank you for sharing your attention so generously. The single best thing you can do to support the JDHD podcast and this community is to help spread the word far and wide. Please tell your friends and your firms about it. Subscribe, rate, and review us in your favorite podcatcher. And please join our email list at thejdhd.com slash start. We can't wait until next time. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough.